You are listening to the Curiosity Podcast, a podcast aimed at equipping future changemakers with the skills that they need to thrive. We discuss business frameworks, exponential technologies, mental health, and living the life that you want to lead. We release an episode every second Thursday and can be found at curiositypodcast.ca. Hello and welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we are joined by Amir Faizpour, who is the co-founder and CEO of Aggregate Intellect, a company building a smart knowledge management platform to bring the benefits of research and emerging technologies to industry teams. In the past, Amir was a data scientist, senior manager, and NLP product lead at RBC, and a postdoctoral research assistant at Oxford University. Amir, thank you so much for your time today. We're really excited to, to chat with you. Um, if you want to say hi or introduce yourself, uh, that would be great. And then we'll get into a few questions. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm really curious how you kind of started off on your career path and what you were like in high school, university before getting onto the trajectory of like machine learning. Yeah, for sure. Uh, high school was a minute ago. <laughs> that, that, that's been quite some time now. So what was I like in high school? So I honestly hated studying when I was in high school. I was completely happy to be on the streets, play, playing soccer with my friends. Um, you know, I, I don't think I ever felt comfortable you know, in the traditional schooling system. So I always struggled with, with you know, being present in the classes and, and all that. But uh, so I'm from Iran originally, and there we have this, uh, you know, uh, countrywide entrance exam to get to university. So at the end of high school, for some magical reason, all of a sudden, I started studying very hard, and I got into you know a decent university uh, in physics. So uh, I immediately regretted that and sort of wanted to change path. And I was like, oh god, like I can't get any jobs with physics. Uh, but I really, yeah, I, I was not one of those kids who you know was in love with physics or whatever. Um, so I went to the advisor that we had, you know, in undergrad. And I said, look, you know, I think I made a mistake. I want to go to an engineering field. Uh, and in Iran, you're either an engineer, a physician, or a lawyer, or you're nothing. So, you know, so that, that you know, social pressure was really strong. Uh, and in hindsight, that's completely stupid. But, you know, that's, that's what I felt. And she told me, you know, one of those moments that really changed the course of my life. And she said, you know, if you're good, it doesn't matter where you are, what you're studying, you will be good. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it was part laziness because I didn't want to go through the paperwork, but I really, you know, took that to heart and, you know, started really enjoying physics. Uh, later, uh, I, you know, got familiar with quantum computing, sorry, quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Uh, which uh, I ended up doing my master's uh, at, you know, the best technical university in Iran. Uh, and later, my PhD at University of Toronto uh, ended up being in, you know, quantum physics and quantum computing, uh, all the way to postdoc. You know, my, my imagination was that, you know, I will become 
uh, a university faculty. So I went all the way up to the point that, you know, the next step was becoming a faculty, but then I decided that I didn't want to continue that path. Wow, that is quite the story. And then from there, how did you transition into your first job? Because you said that wasn't quite the path that you wanted to go on. So did you first go into a job within that field like quantum physics and then realize like, no, I really don't want to do this and then pivot again? Yeah, so when, you know, for when I was doing my postdoc at the University of Oxford, uh, I was working on quite a few interesting projects, uh, you know, with the students that were working with me. And uh, there were a couple of patents that came out of our work. Um, and at that point, you know, I was pretty sure that I didn't want to stay in academia. So the very first thing that I tried was uh, essentially starting a quantum tech startup. Uh, so uh, we, you know, a bunch of people in London, we started, you know, doing market research and figuring out, you know, is our patent, uh, you know, at a point that can be commercialized. But unfortunately, there wasn't any market for it. Uh, and at that point, since I was sure that I wanted to leave academia, and uh, I, you know, started looking for what else I can do outside of physics and you know, AI six or seven years ago was very popular, uh, you know, had started to be, you know, very, very popular in industry. So uh, as, as a career path, I figured if I go to data science, I get to do science and work with data and all the things I like uh, while, you know, making good money, et cetera, et cetera. So that was sort of the, the thinking process that I had, the thought process that I had. So I ended up coming back to Canada, applied to a bunch of jobs, and um, through a bunch of accidents, and you know, it wasn't really my intention to to work in financial industry. I, I wasn't, and I still am not very interested in financial industry as a sector. But I ended up working in financial industry for a few years. Uh, you know, as you said, initially as a data scientist, but then. Uh, I think I have this tendency to hate everything I do and constantly want to change it. You know, I was working there and I was like, mm, that's boring, so you know, what else can I do? So sort of like even the the product role that I ended up doing there was not a formal role there. You know, in, in my department, nobody else was called. I mean, people were called product owners, but that didn't mean anything. Like the product owner in, this, in the sense that I ended up doing was something that I just completely carved for myself. Um, so th that's you know sort of how I ended up in my first industry job. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, like from your physics background, when you shifted to more like machine learning, did you have to take some time to kind of like train to learn machine learning? And how did you go about doing that? And then looking back, like would you change anything with the kind of approach you took? Um. So I answered the second part of what you said first. So um, I generally don't believe in you know doing things differently because we always make decisions that are best for the context and situation that we have, and you know hopefully that has good outcomes. So if I personally go back, most probably I will end up making the same decisions. Um, could I have done a lot of the things more efficiently? Probably, but you know, 
for a person that was in the context that I was, I probably will end up making most of those decisions. Um, and, you know, normally those are not decisions that are between, you know, horrible and good. You know, these are usually, mainly, you know, these are decisions that are between better and slightly better, right? So, so I, I don't think I would have, I would have done anything differently. But what I ended up doing was that yes, like I, I had to, you know, teach myself machine learning. Um, I, I have a funny encounter when I started in data science that I went to my PhD prof and said, oh, I work in data science now. And he said, um, wait, what have you been doing so far? Like for the whole six years that you worked with me, you were taking data, you were analyzing data, you were, you know, coming up with uh you know theory to explain that data etc so isn't that what you're doing now so you know uh, from a skills point of view from you know expertise point of view um you know as somebody who, who had done a phd in a very complex field i like to think uh you know the technical side wasn't too difficult like i had to teach myself python because you know i was using matlab in my phd um uh, but beyond that I just needed to learn the vocabulary, I think, mostly. Uh, and I have this uh, article that I sent to a lot of people who ask for advice about transitioning to data science. And the core of that article, you know, that's about my journey of transitioning. But the core of it is that I'm saying, you most probably know most of these things. You just have to learn the vocabulary if you're coming from a technical field. And, and you know, that that's what happened to me as well. Um, so I, I took some time to take courses. I did a bunch of projects. I talked to a lot of people. You know, a lot of people really, you know, gave me very good advice, etc. Uh, and you know, the, the sort of the inspiration and foundation of what eventually became my community and company was also that process of transitioning from a non-AI field to AI, and what are the things that I would have hoped existed back then but didn't. Yeah, that's a really interesting kind of path you went on from first, you know, learning about physics and then doing research in physics and then learning about machine learning and then going into finance with machine learning. And now you're the CEO and co-founder of Arrogate Intellect. So I'm really curious how you transitioned from, you know, your job in finance to what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, th that's usually when I talk about my past, uh, there are there are two events that I like to highlight because they are, both of them are very important translational moments in my life. One is the one that I said at the beginning of my undergrad when I was, when I had that crisis of, do I wanna be in physics? I talked to that person who said, if you're good, you'll be good, don't worry about it. Uh, that happened again when I was going from my corporate job to the startup, so, uh, you know, less than a year after I started in Royal Bank, I had an opportunity to move on to management. So, you know, I, I got promoted and I had the option to go, you know, continue working technical or, you know, manage a team. Uh, and for a while I tried to do both, but it was very hard. So I told my manager that, look, you know, this is not working, like, what can I do? And he said, okay, pick one which one do you want to be? Like, do you want to be a manager? Do you want to be an individual contributor? Uh, and, you know, I, I just went into this crisis mode again. I was like, okay, I really enjoy coding, but do I want to be a manager? Because that sounds very interesting too. 
uh, so I started talking to a lot of people who, that I respected. And one person told me something that really changed the story for me. Uh, and that was, you know, the fact that you're, you know, interested in both options means that you think that you're good at both. Uh, but as a manager, you will have a lot more impact. So, you know, take the manager job, but stay technical outside of nine to five. And kind of literally that, that same week, I, you know, messaged a bunch of people and said, do you, do you want to get together and read papers? Uh, and, you know, that was like the, the first encounter, the first incident of, you know, what eventually became my community because they started bringing in their friends and friends of friends. And in a few weeks, our mailing list was like 400 people. In a year, it was more than 1,000 people. I met, you know, the person that ended up being my co-founder, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that was just like a slippery slope that I ended up on just because of that one advice, because I wanted to stay technical outside of nine to five. Uh, and later, you know, we ended up starting a company, uh, you know, that, that we can talk about more. Wow, it sounds like serendipity kind of played a, a cool role in your trajectory as well, because little things led to bigger things and you started a group to read papers and you ended up finding your co-founder for the company you're working on. And I also think it's interesting how you mentioned you went into a crisis mode several times in your career. Um, and yet it's it's really good that you actually recognized that you were doing something that you didn't want to spend more time doing and you pivoted and although it may have felt like crisis mode in the moment it led you to like founding your company um and doing what you're currently doing and enjoy so i think that is a great message to our listeners as well because sometimes pivoting can be scary when you've been doing something for a long time and just you know making that decision um in the moment can feel a little bit frightening but in the long term it's always it's always better um, and I'm also curious, so Agrit Intellect now, it's grown a community of over 10,000 practitioners and researchers. Um, so from just being in your research group, now it's expanded so much. And I would love to know like what the process of building up that consumer base over the past three years looked like, because that is a pretty short period of time, um, and how you got your company's name out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I... I do enjoy talking about that topic because it is definitely not a trivial task, like to create a community that, you know, 10,000 is a big number, but I think the more impressive number is that we have around 500 weekly active members, like just having 10,000 people on your mailing list or meetup group or et cetera, et cetera. That's great. But, you know, the fact that they're engaging is, is remarkable. The fact that the majority, probably the first 10 investors in our company came from our community. You know, I think that's pretty impressive. I, I, I think, you know, creating a community that is as engaged as ours uh, is no easy. Uh, so the way, the way I think, I mean, obviously a lot of the things that I'm going to say is, is going to be, uh, you know, some assumptions and hypotheses about how it happened. Um, you know, there is no formula for something like this, I don't think. Uh, but, you know, I think you know, the, the, the most important thing was that we, we tried very hard to be authentic. We tried very hard to be helpful. You know, there, there are a lot of, there are companies whose 
whole technical staff are hired through our community. Like their CTO, all of their developers, you know, they either got hired through our community or eventually ended up joining our community, right? So a lot of things like this happens. And I think the reason that this happens is that, you know, one of the things that I emphasized a lot was to bring in intellectually curious people and facilitate the opportunity for them to talk to each other. And, uh, you know, in, in early days of the community, I formed a steering committee and we spend hours and hours and hours talking about quality control. Like how, how do we make sure people who are joining the community have the caliper and the quality uh, that we wanted? And I always, you know, emphasized and, you know, I, I didn't have any good theories for it, but I always felt like we should be inclusive, we should be open, we should be, you know, welcoming to anybody who wants to participate, but we should not lower our level uh, to let people in. Like essentially the quality of the work that we do should be a self-filtering mechanism. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't want to say we did a perfect job, but we did a lot of things right in that sense. You know, uh, Christina participated in a lot of our community activities. Like, you know, we don't talk about fluff. Like we talk about, you know, hardcore research topics that are, you know, hot off the press. Um, you know, we have worked with the startups in the past who had interesting R&D projects and they were looking for, you know, generating some IP. Uh, we have contributed to the Bloom model, the, the recent, you know, uh, multilingual language model that came out. Uh, we've done a lot of work with Government of Canada on environmental data science projects. So, you know, we, we always have brought value to people and facilitated them interacting with each other. And I think that's a very, very important difference between a community and an audience, because there are a lot of quote unquote influencers on social media that are producing content and people engage with that and blah, blah, blah. But up to the point where you can actually facilitate people to interact with each other while I'm sleeping, that's not a community, that's just an audience. And I think we did a we did as, as good as we could so far, and I'm sure you know we'll learn and do better in the future. Uh, you know, following that principle that we wanted to enable empower people to interact with each other and make sure that they build things that they want to they they can imagine. We have this sub community uh, that it started from researching topics in ML in blockchain uh, about a year ago. Now they have built a product. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they told me that they onboarded a pilot client for their product. So, you know, a lot of amazing things happen when you just empower people to talk. And I think that's the secret in, in what we've done so far. It's very cool to hear about the journey that the company has been on and the rapid amount of growth that it's already faced. And I really like the distinction that you made between a community and an audience because a community is like actively engaging and it is it's kind of like a part of the actual company and it's how a company can thrive. And I remember when Christina was going to these like ML paper reading groups and I was wondering how you came up with the idea for those groups. I don't know if it maybe came from that initial group that you started to read papers. Um, and then how did you market those groups? <laughs> um, so 
So the initial idea, as I said, you know, when we started was, you know, I, I, it was a one-man show. So I, you know, would talk to different companies I knew, and you know, send a calendar invite, and a bunch of people would gather, and you know, uh, you know, we read a paper, and then we disperse. After a while, people said, "Well, actually, I'm coming from Vaughn, and I don't know wherever else in you know GTA." So I can't attend the sessions in person. Can you record them and put them somewhere that I can watch? So we started a YouTube channel. And you know, a bunch of people I started helping. So you know, we were doing more, more and more sessions. So uh, ultimately, we got to a point where we were doing you know, even two sessions a week, recorded, put it on, on YouTube for people to watch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and we continued doing that up to the pandemic lockdown. And you know, a few months, about half a year before the lockdown you know, started, we were you know, considering to do more things online because as, as time was going on, we were reaching more and more people from you know, other cities even through our YouTube channel. Um, and when the pandemic hit, we just didn't have the, even the option to meet in person. So, we went, you know, at the beginning of pandemic, we went into this mode where we sort of started losing the community side. Like, you know, we 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 really went down on the content side. We started creating workshop content that we sold to people, and we had, I think, at some point around forty people who were creating content for our YouTube channel. Like, they were inviting uh, researchers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at some point, I caught myself thinking, wait a minute. Like we don't have as much engagement as I wanted. Like what is happening? And you know, this distinction between audience and community really gained its color at that point. Because before then I was like, oh, I, we have a community. But at that point, I realized, wait a minute, if we are not allowing people to do things together, that's not a community. So I just, you know, stopped all of our YouTube activities and went to a few people in the community and said, you want to set up some discussion groups because you know if we bring in like I think we call them study groups first, then we call them discussion groups. Eventually, a, a lot of people wanted to do projects, so we also added the working group uh, flavor. So, long story short, it was just an evolution of you know me trying to figure out how I could add value to people in our community and really listening to what they were asking for. Um, and we didn't honestly market them too hard. You know, I just posted about them on social media. And again, like if there is value, people will bring their friends. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of our community are really friends of friends. Yeah, the community I can definitely vouch for is is amazing because people there are really trying to learn either like brush up on like cutting edge, you know, papers or just like learning the basics and then like learning new papers after that but it's like a at least when i did it it was like every week you would read your paper and then discuss it with your group and it was like one of the best ways to learn in my opinion and also the way you found out how to give value to people i think is what makes it such a good community because a lot of times communities are just like showcasing their events because like they want a quick feedback cycle for example for their product but like you gave people like you know the ability to learn and communicate with other people and network as well and that's why it's such an engaging community, in my opinion. And I'm really curious about how aggregate intellect is decentralizing science, because 
in at least the way I look at it, it's like the communities kind of allow people to create these like nodes of knowledge. And then that is allowing like a smart knowledge management platform. So was that intentional from the beginning? Like when you were like starting this thing where you're like, oh, this is a kind of idea or was it after like building the community? You're like, hey, this could happen. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yes and no. Like it, it was, it was intentional in a sense that you know what I originally imagined, uh, like the vision that I had, was something along these lines. But it was completely vague. You know, I I didn't have any sort of concrete idea of what it actually means. Uh, you know, sort of the the core of the idea happened when I was leaving academia, and I you know for the first time I I saw NLP. And I was completely fascinated by the fact that you can do computation on natural language. Like before that, you know, as a physicist, I was just used to tables of numbers and, you know, doing all sorts of, you know, extremely complicated computations on those, but ultimately they were numbers. So the fact that you could computationally handle language was absolutely mind blowing for me. And the very first use case that came to mind was I hate reading papers. They are so poorly written. Can I use NLP to make them better? Like, you know, at least the machine can read the paper and tell me what's relevant. Uh, and I remember when we started a company, obviously, you know, we were thinking about, okay, okay, there is that idea, but like, how can we make money? So the, the core of the idea was creating some sort of a marketplace where on one side there are, you know, technical people, on one side there are business people, and, you know, they can somehow interact with each other through you know the, the information that is in this marketplace uh, and you know over the past few years we have tried many different flavors and versions of this so initially we started as an education platform because our assumption was that okay that interaction is probably through education uh, but then later you know we pivoted more towards product development and knowledge management uh, because you know that made more sense but ultimately I think you know, what we want to do is to create what I like to call a GitHub for technical knowledge. So essentially the, the way GitHub, you know, really accelerated, like open source software movement existed before GitHub, but GitHub was the tool, was the hub that really accelerated that process. And there's, you know, a much deeper story to that, but I really want to do that for technical knowledge. And, and the way GitHub did that was, by creating this utility that allows people to collaborate on source code. And in, in a very interesting way, because source code is modular uh, and you know, GitHub provides a very uh, seamless way for people to collaborate and build on top of each other. Uh, and that's exactly what I wanna do for technical knowledge. You know, the concept of recipes that you know, you've seen, Christina, and for those who don't know, is essentially an ordered list of resources and notes is essentially my reimagination of what source code means for technical knowledge. You know, it is it is a curation of you know pieces of knowledge that you can put together to carry out a certain task. Hence the name recipe, uh, and you know that is essentially the building block that we are going to use to externalize knowledge that experts have. And if this knowledge exists on our platform the way you know public repositories exist on GitHub then you know you can imagine a future where uh you know a lot of people can contribute to this knowledge base a lot of people can build on top of each other's knowledge 
uh, and you know create all sorts of interest in intellectual property you know as i said there are already self-emerging uh, you know phenomena like that blockchain group that i mentioned that created the product so it is very it is not completely obvious but it is easy for me to imagine a future where the network effect of the platform is so strong that anybody who's looking for creating new intellectual property would come here engage with the community experts engage with the knowledge that is externalized on a platform and contribute to that we are even exploring ideas uh, you know based on blockchain uh, technology where we can create lineage for you know, let's say you contribute a piece of knowledge to this ecosystem, and I eventually use this to, you know, create some commercial value. You know, how can we compensate everybody that that you know participated in this system? So, really, you know, more than decentralized science, what I'm looking for is a decentralized knowledge economy, like a marketplace that creates a direct connection between, you know, curators and creators and innovators and people who have opportunities to turn these into commercial opportunities, right? Um, and, you know, then distribute the value among all of the ecosystem. So uh, there are a lot of interesting things that we're thinking about, and, and I'm excited to see where we go. I think that is a, a very important vision because something like machine learning can definitely seem very complex and, and hard to start with because you're like, where do I even start? And so you know, what you're doing, making this something where anyone can join, uh, like a machine learning group and just start learning is very important. And, and I think, especially now, because machine learning is really rising in popularity and importance, it's a super crucial skill set. Um, and you've worked in the machine learning industry for more than three years now. So from your experience, what would you say are the three main factors that are preventing innovation within ML in large companies? And do you think large companies face different challenges than startups in that sense? Um, so that, you know, both the small and large companies have pros and cons in terms of, you know, how they're approaching ML, right? So the, the good thing about big companies is that they have a lot of data, they have a lot of resources, there are a lot of people working for them, etc. So on paper, you could imagine that, oh, I have a lot of data, I have you know all the AWS machines that I want and all colleagues that I can collaborate with. But the reality is that you know when an organization gets big enough, then what is running the organization is politics, not merit. Uh, and that kind of breaks down that ideal uh, picture that you hoped you would have. So uh, un unfortunately, that creates a lot of roadblocks because you know personal agendas become more important than you know what is actually helpful for the business or you know the technology that we're developing. So you know, while they have more resources, they also are a slower and more resistant, resilient to, uh, or rather resistant to, to new ideas and exploration of risky ideas and things like that. Uh, on the flip side, in a startup, we can do whatever we want, right? So like literally I can wake up every morning and say, oh, let's try this idea. And people in my team are probably very excited to try it. Right? But at the same time, we don't have resources. Like we don't have all of those big 
compute machines. We don't have, you know, infinite data. We don't have infinite people to work on all sorts of crazy ideas. So, you know, I, I don't think um, it is a fair comparison to say, you know, which one is doing better or worse. You know, everybody is doing what they can uh, with, with different problems to solve. So, you know, roadblocks in, uh, in big companies is usually, you know, coordinating a large number of people and aligning them behind a, a meaningful vision, uh, while in a sm small startup, that's easier to achieve, but resources are a lot more limited. So uh, very, very different. And, and there is no right or wrong. It's just you know, a matter of personal preferences. For me, the former is a torture. The latter is an interesting puzzle to be solved. For sure, that's a very interesting comparison. And also, like I think it is true where like you know the resources come into play, but also like having so many people align on a like a I guess agenda is very difficult. Um, so yeah, really good points. And thank you so much for being here today. Uh, it was very interesting hearing what you know the future is going to hold for AI.science and all the community for it. So thank you so much. Before we end off, could we get three action items for you for our listeners? <laughs> Definitely. Um, so I do these um, career coaching sessions where people can book me to talk about their career, about you know anything like they want to start a company, they're making a decision about a position they can take. Sometimes even people book me to talk about should I do a PhD or not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So uh, I, I'm really open to any conversation that. Um, that you think you know, I, I have something interesting to say. So I'll I'll show uh, I'll share the link with you, and you know, can include it in your show notes. And anybody who's interested can book me to talk. You know, I, my my doors are open. You know, twenty minutes a day is just dedicated to doing that. Um, so that's one. Two in a lot of these um, you know career coaching sessions, a lot of questions that I'm asked. Uh, you know, a lot of time people are confused about what should I learn you know what should I do so that I'm you know at a better place in a year in two years in three years um, and I always answer that question by saying that that's not even the right question to ask you know I, I understand that that's a point of confusion but to me the most important skill that you need is learning to learn because whatever tool you learn whatever framework you learn it's going to change in two years uh, therefore, your, your ability to learn is the most important thing that will allow you to adapt and, and move forward. Um, and you know that, that's the second call to action. You know, learn how to learn. Um, and the third one is you know just building on top of that is in order to you know train this muscle of learning to learn. Really, what you need to amplify in yourself is curiosity. Like you have to have growth mindset. You have to, you have to always be a sponge that wants to absorb and learn, right? So, you know, the, the only way that you can learn to learn is to be open-minded. You know, I personally have suffered from, you know, being like, oh, these business people, I don't want to interact with that. Even I started this conversation by distancing myself from the financial sector, while now that I'm doing a startup. All the information about financial sector is so helpful in me creating financial models for my company. I have no idea how to do those. 
et cetera, et cetera, right? So if, if I had that curiosity, uh, you know, and didn't distance myself from, you know, things that I was uncomfortable encountering, uh, I think, you know, I would have had an easier time. Uh, so, you know, really the third call to action is be curious and be open to learning things uh, and importantly encounter things that you're most afraid of because those are the moments that you grow the most. Yeah, the last action item I really like because I feel like oftentimes people get exposed to like a new field or domain of knowledge and then from their first encounter they like tell usually if they like it or not. But there's so much more to basically every domain there is like in the world, for example, like mathematics or like machine learning or finance. And there's always something that you can find that's very cool and it can be very useful to learn. And like, who knows what that knowledge will bring to you down the line. So I would like the be open-minded and keep learning one. And with that, that is the end of our podcast. Thank you again so much for being here. Of course. Uh, thanks for having me.